Welcome to Wood Talk for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now, here are three guys who like to use a lot of words yet say nothing at all Mark, Matt, and Shannon. All right, welcome to Wood Talk number 203 for November 3rd, 2014. On today's show, we're talking about wood warping after a resaw, trouble with a smoothing plane, and octagonal frame joinery. All that and more coming up, but first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. Audible.com is a leading provider of audiobooks with more than 150,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature. To download your free audiobook today, go to audiblepodcast.com slash woodtalk. And also by ArborTech. Get ArborTech's new Contour Random Sander. It's the ideal tool for all of your sanding jobs. It molds to the shape of your sculpted forms for effective sanding and features a powerful random sanding action. It doesn't burn or dig in at the edges, and it fits into any standard angle grinder. Check it out online at www.arbortechusa.com. You know, some tools stand apart the most when they're all working together. <laughs> that was really well done. I like that. I appreciate that. So conversational. That. You know, I was thinking. <laughs> you know, you should buy some Festool. Because when you explore a full system designed to deliver more precise results at... Oh, that didn't work. Nope, FestoolUSA.com. I ad-libbed and it fell apart. <laughs> Flush it down the toilet. I'm sorry. It's my fault because I interrupted you. <laughs> I felt like you were talking right to me. That's awesome. Uh, so yeah. good. Yeah. I was. You really need some Festool, Matt. <laughs> All right. And also, we want to thank Arda Development. Uh, sometimes you make a, a purchase or do a donation on PayPal, and it puts your business's name there. So I don't know who it is, but that's the name of the company associated with it or the person, the company that that person is associated with. So thank you very much. And if you want to help out the show, you can do that, too, at woodtalkshow.com. Look in that left-hand column. There's a couple of links there for one-time or small recurring donations, and we appreciate that kind of support. I think we should jump right into what's on the bench. I'll go first. I haven't really done much in the shop. A little bit of cleaning, calm before the storm. I do have another project, the little kitchen helper project that's coming up soon. Uh, So I'm trying to straighten things up, getting cleaned up for that. But as I'm sitting around thinking about house stuff, like I've mentioned this to you you guys a couple of times, we're doing some things in the house, just thinking about little improvements we could make here and there. Well, we've got this uh, in our living room. We've got this giant nook It's just very common. I don't know if it is everywhere else, but in Arizona, very common construction detail is to have these little drywall nooks where you could put, you know, TVs and whatnot. So it's like 14 feet wide and like eight, nine feet tall. And right now we just have our TV and a couple of shelves in there. So I'm thinking, man, this thing is ripe for a beautiful built in if I could just figure out how the heck to do it. The heck around here, that's a bedroom. <laughs> right, exactly, yes. A little bit narrow, but uh, you know, we sleep comfortably in here. Uh, so I, I'm starting to think about built-ins, and it definitely is my weak point, uh, and I don't know if anyone who's ever tried to do a built-in coming from the furniture building perspective, built-ins are kind of a different story because usually you build square, and the only things that are out of, the, out of square are the things you made out of square. But when you're building to go into a space, it's kind of a different ballgame because the people who built the house may not have been so concerned about perfection. <laughs> so things, <laughs> you know, walls may not be plumb, there may not be square, the, the floor may not be completely flat all the way across. And you've got to make adjustments for this and you've got to get your nice square casework to live inside that space. So it is a little bit of a different way of thinking. And I've done a couple basic ones before, and this one shouldn't be too much of a, a challenge to do, but I'm really just kind of got my brain on that right now. And I may not be able to get to this thing for months, but I'm still going through that like early, early design process as I'm thinking about how to actually install this and what kind of features we want in it. But it's, it's going to be a heck of a job. It's a pretty big space to fill. 
you know, that's the the best time of a project is when you're kind of like, oh, I got these all these possibilities. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Of course, about eight or nine versions into it, you're like, I'm so sick of this project already. And I haven't <laughs> yeah. even bought the supplies for it. Yeah, it's before the reality hits in about how difficult it's going to be. You're like, oh, yeah, this is going to be fantastic. Uh, and usually in the Vanderlist household, this also sparks at least three or four fights because then it's like, well, you never let me have a say in what you're going to build, uh, usually because you don't have a clue how I build it. Well, that's the problem. <laughs> and then it goes back and forth. And then we decide, you know what, let's just leave it the way it is for the sake of the marriage. Yeah, let's let's do nothing. <laughs> how about that? Uh, and I, I think I lucked out. Nicole's just like, eh, whatever you want. I'm sure I'm sure it'll be fine. So oh, man, let's let's just hope I could actually, you know, <laughs> do that, that sort of trust justice. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. I've got some built-ins that are going in our master bedroom, and I've actually, <clears throat> when I remodeled my shop, I bought the plywood for the built-ins for the master bedroom at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I, let's see, I finished the shopper model a couple months ago. Probably can't start the built-ins for at least another couple of months, but yet I've still got all these sheets of plywood that are really in the way right now. So <laughs> my shop is not big enough to house plywood, and my little impromptu lumber garden shed is not big enough to house an entire sheet of plywood. And yeah, yeah, so it's kind of a pain. I went in rough, cut some stuff down so that they're a little bit thinner. They're not four by eight, but Mm -hmm. they're still, still eight feet long, taking up almost one wall of the shop. So yeah, I should probably get started on that. And that's why I'm not buying anything ahead of time because I don't want to sit there and look at the material and feel guilty that I haven't started the project yet. (laughs) Yes, you have a, you have a truck though. So it's like when I have a truck to carry stuff home, it's like, oh, I got to get stuff for the next three years. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That would make a big difference. <laughs> oh, yeah. Cool. that's uh, Right now I have uh, some of Madison. I have the materials for Madison's dresser that I really, really want to get to, but I've got a couple of things going on in the shop right now. So I have the materials sitting in there because I can't bring them out into the studio space here where we actually record the podcast or, or this part of the podcast. And it, it's killing me because it's always one of those things like, now I got to get to my router oh dang it now i gotta move all of this to get over to that <laughs> and if i put plywood in there uh, just like you shannon it's just like wait wait what's going on here <laughs> nice <laughs> right no place to move all yeah. right matt how about you well for since it is the beginning of november are you guys familiar at all with movember the no shave november thingy going on for bringing awareness to prostate and testicular cancer and mental health issues and all things that happen to not be so great for men yes yeah, yes. it's the thing that my wife says, just send a check because you look terrible with facial hair. <laughs> yeah, I'm not allowed to grow beards either. Uh, I, Nicole will tolerate the way I normally look just with the five o'clock shadow, uh, but no no growth, like no major growth there. Not allowed. Okay, well, in honor of it, I ended up creating a, a beard comb out of some scrap wood that I have laying around. Again, trying to attempt to make more space in my own shop by uh, building small items like that. It's going to take me years to actually <laughs> make the say, space. In 50 years, you'll yeah. consume a whole board. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought it would be something really fun because we actually do have some friends that really, really, really get involved with it. In fact, what they end up doing is uh, apparently it's a competition to see who can grow the facial hair the fastest. I don't know how they're doing it, but like the other day they actually had the shave the date where they went ahead. Uh, one of our good friends has a, a really nice beard. It's all, it's not quite near as long as mine, but it's nicely filled in and looks really good on him. And he shaved the whole thing off and I'm like, wow, we're looking at pictures of you from the eighth grade. That's really awesome. <laughs> uh, so anyways, though, uh, so it's one of those things where I'm thinking, you know, maybe what I'll end up doing is donating to him cause he's on a team 
to raise money for it. But regardless of whether you donate or get involved or anything like that, I thought it'd be a fun little project again, using just some scrap wood, maybe a neat project for the holidays as they're coming up. Perhaps, you know, a, uh, a fine, good looking bearded gentleman who really could use a good grooming because it always seems like they're gnarled constantly. So, uh, once I got the prototype down the right way and made sure that all the corners are properly rounded and no longer catch my hair and make me cry when I use it, it's a wonderful tool. Nice. That's how, so is this coming out on uh, the Matt Basement Workshop regular yep, podcast? In fact, it's going to come out this week. Uh, nice. It'll be out Friday. Um, of course, the folks over at Patreon, you're going to get your little, little extra bonus footage in there. One thing I will say, and I learned this the hard way, I – Again, Shannon, I'm sure you often get emails that are like pictures of wood and somebody says, what is this? <laughs> yes, yes, a lot. Okay, well, I have one I'm sending to you. If you could uh, identify it for me, I'd really appreciate it. <laughs> no, yeah, just but, make sure it's really out of focus and poor lighting and, and in no way shows any characteristics of the board. Oh, that sounds like every picture I take. That's awesome. All right, cool. uh, so Good anyways, good. but the, the one I have right now, the the wood that I used for the blade of the comb itself. Um, I, I ended up getting it from one of those scrap bin boxes that I, I purchased a while ago. And I don't know what it is, but I now know that if it gets wet, it smells like dog. Sweet. And so as a result, when I got out of the beard, out of the shower, I went to comb my beard and now my beard smells like dog <laughs> a little bit. I was so. going to ask you, uh, oddly enough, can I use, can I make one of those and use it to brush my dog? You probably could. I don't see why not. I mean, hmm. absolutely. Let's, I might let's do go that for then. it. I have a yeah. black lab. He does like a good brushing now and then. There you go. It would be perfect for it. And if you want to, <laughs> uh, one thing I've been doing is putting a little bit of a ginger oil that I have to help take away the dog smell out of my beard. Um, and, it, and it does a really good job of finishing the uh, wood for the blade of the comb. But nice. uh, people got a little look at that also in the thing. So that's what's been going on in mine. Now, uh, Shannon, you went to a sale and got all brown and you got a T-shirt. And I guess I don't understand. Yeah, it was the I, I guess it's. I don't know if it's annual or biannual or whatever it is. Every two years, I don't know, maybe it's once a year. The Brown Tool Auction is actually what it is. It's Fine Tool Journal does this really fancy auction, <clears throat> which I can never afford or I'm even brave enough to try to bid on any of the stuff at the auction. Uh, um, not according to your post. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Friday before is the tool sale. And oh. this was an interesting year for me because um, – I, I've been looking ever since I started volunteering at the Stone Museum almost six years ago, I guess. It I've been looking for one of these Barnes number three velocipede lays, just cool steampunk kind of Victorian era uh foot powered lathe, and quickly discovered how incredibly rare they are and that I would never be able to find one. And I just about given up when one of the people I had said, Hey, if you ever come across one, emailed me and said, Hey, I've got one. So I bought that lathe. I talked about it here on the show. This was probably back in June or July that I bought it. And it's it's so big and so heavy, there was just no way we were going to ship it. But the guy I bought it from was going to be selling at the show, at the Brown Tool Sale on Halloween. So I went up there to pick it up. So it was really kind of cool because I was getting this really, really cool, frankly, very expensive tool that I had paid for months ago. So it was almost like it was free. You know, it's, it's when you buy stuff four months ago, you forget that you ever had that money to begin with. So, you know, I went up there and, you know, was looking around and in the back of my mind, I'm thinking I really shouldn't buy anything because I already spent a lot of money on this lathe. And then I started thinking, yeah, but that was months ago. So I started looking around and people can hate me for this if they want, but I 
don't really need that many tools. And it was kind of a letdown because <laughs> I'm in this room with just these amazing vintage tools. And I was like, yeah, I really don't need that. Nah, that's cool. But I really don't need that. Nah. And it, I was just like walking through the aisle looking at tools. And I kept thinking of people that I know on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram that would be like, oh my God, this is great. I would love to be in that room. And <laughs> I just like, this is just, uh, this is just like an insult to woodworkers that I'm walking through here and and not buying anything. So I ended up buying an oil painting. <laughs> oil painting. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Why of not? all things, you know, you go to the tool sale and it, it's, it's just a really cool painting of, of a blacksmith shop, kind of old timey. And it just, it would fit one of the rooms in our house and my wife loves it. So that's great. But it's just the type of thing where, you know, you go to the Lee Nielsen factory and all you get is a t-shirt. Yeah. I went to the brown tool <laughs> sale. And all I got was an oil painting. But nice. I, I had a lot of conversations with guys who were obviously tool collectors and not woodworkers. And and please don't misunderstand. That's fine. You know, tool collecting is fine. And there are a lot of tools that I would collect that I would not want to use. Um, there's a – I picture, uh, posted a picture on Instagram of this incredibly ornate saw with a ivory handle that there's just no way I would ever want to use that. And it's so clean already. It looks like it's a surgical saw. It's so shiny and bright. And that's like the realm of tool collectors. But having conversations with these guys, it, it, we could not connect on any level. Everything I was looking for, they're like, what now? Why would you want that? And everything <laughs> they were looking for, I'd be like, seriously, why would you want that? It was just a very, I had a conversation with a guy who does nothing but collects folding rules. And he was looking for the specific folding rule with this tiny little mark on the inside of the hinge. And he had his magnifying glass out. And he was looking through this huge box of folding rules, you know, those boxwood folding rules. And he finally found the one he was looking for. And he's like, this is great. And he's showing me all the reasons he was looking at it. And I was like, that's so cool, man. Okay. So anyway, <laughs> it was just a total disconnect. We we had absolutely nothing in common, yet we both went to a tool show. It was, kind of an interesting perspective shift for me. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think some of us do walk a little bit of a balance on both ends of that because I've got my things where it's pure utility and I don't understand why someone would spend a certain amount of money on that particular thing. But then there are other things that I value a little bit higher that I might spend a little bit of extra money for that don't even affect the utility. They just make me happy to own them. Um, so I've got personally, I mean, I'm, I have no problem admitting I've got a little bit of tool collector in my blood. Uh, yeah. but over the years by necessity, you start to sort of, I go more to the other side of utility. Like, yes, I do like nice tools, but I'm also going to use the hell out of those nice tools. Um, you know, just collecting for collection's sake is not really something I do anymore, but I can definitely see where a lot of these people are coming from. Oh, I mean, when it comes to new tools and like boutique makers, I'm totally a tool collector. Yeah. I mean, I I just, I bought a marking gauge from Phil Edwards at Philly Plains this week. Mm-hmm. Last thing I need is a marking gauge, but it's, it's gorgeous. <laughs> and I, I really like Phil's work. I've got a couple of his planes and it's like, you know, I'll support the guy and I, I will actually use his marking gauge a lot, but I don't need another marking gauge. But what I found interesting was these are guys that just the sheer body of knowledge they have in their heads on model numbers and when that model number was made and they can look at a serial number and tell you off the top of their head to like within six months when it was produced and what factor it was produced. And they're specifically looking for, 
you know, case in point, the guy with the ruler, he was looking for this one with this little mark that made, that meant it was made between like 1860, 1861 and like 1863, because that way it would fit on the shelf he had at home because he had an 1860 and an 1864 and he needed one to fit in the space in between. <laughs> nice. I mean, that was in, in just talking to him about it and the, just the, encyclopedia of knowledge that he poured out over such a tiny little subject of boxwood rulers. It was just kind of nuts. You know, I'd liken it to stamp collectors or something. If you could have narrowed it down to like, you know, it was on a Tuesday and that was the day that Phil worked. (laughs) Now, Phil was one of their lazier workers there and he had a tendency of getting mayonnaise uh, sprayed onto the material. That would have been really awesome. This little flex. Yeah, that's old mayonnaise. (laughs) (laughs) He was a very messy eater. They sound like the kind of people that if you have like those little Clarence Blanchard, uh, the Stanley Little Big Book, you know, the reference guides that they end up walking right. around with. They sound like the individuals who you look in the in the, the very back and they're like, I'd like to thank uh, Bob, Bill, Joe and uh, Frank for pretty much filling all the pages for me. Right. Well, it's, nice. it's just so funny because it is kind of I don't want to say opposite. I just have not. I like the history, but I just don't care about those details. I mean, you guys have seen it. We get questions here on the show about, you know, I have the Stanley number 67 type C, you know, whatever. And I'm like, I got to go look it up. I'm like, I have no idea what they're talking about. Yeah, see, I don't read those. I just leave those for you. <laughs> Thanks. <appreciate that. laughs> yeah, they do go into the Shannon uh, file. That's actually. right. The Shannon file in the in the scrap pile. All right, let's move into what's new. Got a link here to share for you that was sent in. I don't have the person's name who sent. Oh, you know why? Because I put this in there. Doi. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah, these are creative cutting boards by Cameron Oler or Euler, possibly. I'm sure you guys have seen this where they take the end grain cutting board concept and use that to make like very basic 8-bit graphical designs in a cutting board and they can be absolutely amazing and super fun. So there's a bunch of them here. I think this is just great inspiration. If you really like making cutting boards and you want to get creative and make some cool stuff that might sell well at a craft show or something, uh, you've got some ideas here. So there's a Batman logo I see. There's a Space Invaders, Pac-Man. We're talking about just old video game stuff. Old Mega Man, Zelda, there's just so many possibilities, especially when you go to like old school games, because that's all it was, is just little blocks and pixels. So you can get these very basic images uh, that harken back to an early time in gaming, which is pretty darn cool. And uh, I'd like to see people's creative take on this. There's probably a lot of different things you could do uh, with this particular design concept. Yeah. So very, very cool. Yeah, very good stuff. I like it. All right. I like it a lot. You guys going to go see Dumb and Dumber too? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be there. <laughs> so going to be there. All right. We anyway. should Skype during the middle of it. I bet that wouldn't piss <laughs> off anybody. Yeah. Like a second screen experience. That'll be nice. Exactly. Yeah. All on right. <clears throat> exactly. That'll be good. All right. Let's go to our poll of the week. Uh, buddy Tom Iovino sets these up for us. I don't have a new one to announce this week, but last week's poll was about holiday themed projects. I was actually kind of surprised about this. Uh, it's a, the basic question was whether or not you make them. Uh, and s- let's see. said yes, 52% said no, and 13% said never thought about it. Only 35% of the people polled actually make holiday-themed projects or have made a holiday-themed project. And I haven't done a lot of them, but some of the ones that I've done have been really fun, and I'm glad glad I did them. I was just really surprised that only 35% uh, of the people actually have made them in the past. 
Interesting. Yeah, kind of weird. I thought it would be higher. Yeah, I kind of did See, too, to be honest. I think I think what happens is you do it one year and you're like, God, I'm never going to do that again. So what, what we're seeing is a demographic of new woodworkers. So 35% are new to the craft. <laughs> they haven't gotten to year. that. They haven't gotten to that point of saying yes yet. <laughs> right. This nice. is their first Christmas as a woodworker. So it's actually a sign of the growth of the craft. It's really good. There you go. Hey, I've got a uh, advent calendar you might want to try. Not. <laughs> there's, a, there's a good entry into the craft. One of my favorite episodes of The Wood Whisperer. Making t- uh, 25 tiny little doors. Actually, my favorite was all the behind-the-scenes emails. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, those are always fun. All right, let's get into our kickback. We actually have quite a bit. Uh, last episode got a lot of people excited about uh, not getting into the shop. So what's that say about our show? What? <laughs> yeah. Um, so Billy Edwards writes us. He says, oh, my goodness. Hearing you guys talk about staying out of the shop on occasion just liberated me. I have what I call a PBS workshop, as it looks like it should be on a show. Occasionally, I'll finish a large project and be at a loss for the next production and actually want to take a break from it all. Then my guilt sets in, thinking that I must be the only one out there like this. More guilt then sets in because of owning the PBS shop and that true non-lazy woodworkers would a place that true non-lazy woodworkers would covet. Uh, thanks for letting me know that I'm not the only one. I think I'll go mow my lawn. Pretty cool. So we had a couple other people write in too that were just like, "Oh, thank you for saying that." <laughs> you know, because we always <laughs> feel guilty not being in the shop 24/7 or at least all of our available free time. Uh, and it felt good to hear other people express that they don't spend every minute in the shop. We well, you know, it goes along the same lines as when we. Have, you know, tell people about how we have those moments where we get burnt out and that we need to walk away or mm-hmm. that we just don't have an interest in doing X, Y, or Z. It's funny how we suddenly do get those emails and you almost get this sense. I don't know about you guys, but when I'm reading the emails, I get this sense they're like, they're almost ashamed to admit that they feel this way <laughs> yeah. and that they should somehow be punished for it. So <laughs> <laughs> I think it's only going to get worse too. I mean, if you look around and see what in terms of like content that's being produced, a lot of the shows these days that are making content, we, we talk about this all the time behind the scenes, um, like a lot of the new YouTube generation of woodworkers, they have it in their heads that they have to make a weekly show. Uh, mm-hmm. And in some cases, multiple shows a week. And this sort of sets the pace in people's minds that, well, I should be able to produce at the same rate. I'm not even filming this stuff. So I should certainly be able to build a new project every week. And, and it may actually, you know, kind of like watching a old school woodworking show and thinking you could do a whole project in a half hour. Right. What? You know, it's, mean, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're crushing my world here. <laughs> David Marks didn't do that in 30 minutes. I know. He's setting up the jig and then setting up the jig to build the next jig. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's the thing. A lot of people would get the impression by watching Norm that, oh, yeah, yeah, you can build a project in a half hour. And the reality is, no, 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 kind of takes a couple weeks. And I, I think the same thing might be happening today with new woodworkers that see this production rate for these uh, for these YouTube shows and may think that, well, I got to be out there all the time to be able to meet this production level. Yep, exactly. Although I do blame the early days of Matt's Basement Workshop where I tried that whole thing with <laughs> the, the Daily, Daily Show. The oh Daily Matt. Uh, yes. Daily Daily like, yeah, tips from the, the scrap pile, the Daily Matt, and then finally my my family like, did the intervention and I'm like, all right, all right, I'll go down to just once a week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, smart choice. All right. Yeah. All right, well, this next kickback comes from Gary B and he says, on show number 202, you questioned whether a T-track would be strong enough for heavy clamping pressure, especially with the Craig clamp uh, that Shannon mentioned. Now, that same question had crossed my mind recently because I'm building an assembly table and wanted to use some of the Craig clamps. I saw that Craig sells Craig clamp track, which is beefed up T-track for use with their Craig clamps. Now, wait a minute. You know, Gary, that's a lot of Craig clamps that you keep putting in there. I think you might actually be working for Craig 
could potentially get subliminal in there because I keep <laughs> saying Craig all the time because I think I've got three more Craigs I have to say. So anyways, Gary goes on to say, I googled Craig Clamp track versus T-Track and ran into several discussions that talked about that the T-Track not being strong enough. So I got a Craig Clamp track. It is substantially sturdier than standard T-Track and is able to handle all the clamping pressure I needed. Huh, good to hmm. know. Interesting. It's also good to know that my my instinct that the regular T-Track just might not withstand that kind of pressure sounds like it might be accurate, at least to some people's experience there. Yeah. Well, it is further down the alphabet, and sometimes, you know, things further down the alphabet get hidden away, so. <laughs> uh, good logic there. Uh, Shannon, yeah, just, I, I just want you to say Craig Clamp Track one more Craig time. Craig Clamp Track. track, track. <laughs> that is a, a bit of a tongue twister. It's even worse when you read it because they're spelling words like clamp with a K. Right. Yeah. Yes. So it just kind of screws everything up. Yes. Yeah. Well, thankfully, they don't have a third K in there. That could really cause some issues. That could be terrible. That's crazy with a K. Oh, all righty. Tom Leroy said, I wanted to reach out as your most recent episode contained an awesome discussion about moving beyond the mechanics of woodworking and joinery into the topic of design, grain selection, and the impact of wood choice on the overall piece. In an audio only format, this topic is not easy, and you guys nailed it. Yeah, we did. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Great work. As an aside, I would also recommend Mike Pekovich's most recent article in Fine Woodworking, where he covered this in relation to a side table he was building. As I progressed in my woodworking hobby, I found the design, stock selection, and part layout to contain equal <clears throat> excuse me, equal amounts of challenge and reward. Uh, buh, 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 what is this? There's something in here. Yeah, about there's a link. Is that something flexibility he... on design build curve? I don't know. Did Maybe you write that's that? What... I don't know. But it's not in reference to Mike Pekovich because it's no. a Highland Woodworking thing. So. Right. No, I think it is It is Tom's article. His article, I, right? Yeah. Oh, I see that. Okay. So, yeah. Hey, Tom's published. He's important. <laughs> I better put that in the show notes then. Okay. Way to go, Tom. You've got an article that we should all click on. I should really go read this. Do Flexibility it. on the design build curve is what it's called Don't in read Highland it. Woodworking. Don't read it now, though. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, we have to move on with the rest of the you show. You want me to read it out loud right now? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Actually, if you could do that for an episode of the Spoken Wood podcast, which will be airing in uh, 2033. Can I use my Ferris Bueller voice? Yes. In absolutely. What way. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. Uh, let's move on to the next one from Chris with two S's. He says, in response to the mother and father of spice racks from Wood Talk 202, I've got a method that I'd use to cut finger and box joints, which I think is pretty neat to share cutting box joints horizontally with a very cool contraption. Uh, much easier to explain in video format, so please go check it out. He says, trust me, it's worth the watch. Well, it's him in it, so that's a little bit self-serving, Chris. <laughs> right. <laughs> Frankly, if I'm being honest. Uh, and it's not so much a technique as a jig that he built, essentially, that holds the router. And it's actually a pretty ingenious design, really well built. And if you like building those uh, sort of wood implements to make your tools that much more functional, this is definitely up your alley. And he does a great job of explaining it so go check it out we'll embed that video in our show notes so you could check it out if you just go to this episode on our site yeah absolutely and the next one comes in from jeff and that's jeff with a g and two f's at the end so it's geoff 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 i like that uh, so jeff says in episode 202 shannon wondered out loud what a drop saw was i thought about it for a bit and came to the conclusion that it was a distant relative of the extremely dangerous australian predator called the drop bear. Those buggers drop out of trees and attack you when you least expect it. <laughs> Anecdotal evidence suggests that smearing Vegemite on yourself will protect you. I'd be very careful around drop saws if I were you, Shannon. <laughs> Good to know. Yes. Uh, better safe than sorry. 
So go get, your, get yourself some Vegemite. I wonder if it would also work for any of those guys at the Brown Tool auction. I don't know where I made that connection. I'm not sure where you're going with that at all. Let's move into our voicemail. <laughs> Let's quickly recover from that. It's the voice in my head. <laughs> We've got a voicemail from John asking a question about sanding pads. Hello, Mark, Matt, and Shannon. This is John from Nebraska. I'm just calling because I have a major issue. Um, I have a DeWalt random orbit sander. It has a medium pad, so when I go to sand a narrow edge, it rounds over the corners. And I remember Mark's video about sanding efficiency, and he had a firm pad from Testool. I am trying to find any brand that carries these firm pads with random orbit sanders. Could you please help me find one? Great show. I love listening to you guys. Thank you. All right. Well, I did my best to help John out here. If I had known how difficult it would be to find firm sanding pads for a random orbit sander, I may not have mentioned it uh, in that video. The problem was in that video, we were talking specifically about Festool gear and Festool does kind of spoil spoil you in that sense where they have multiple pads available for different tasks. So they've got soft, uh, the one that comes with it is sort of a general use and then they have a hard pad and that hard pad is really, really handy if you want to sand narrow edges or get near the edge of your workpiece, you have much less of a tendency to follow uh, and sort of fall off the edge. So that, and I actually use the harder pad on my sander full time now. I don't even use the the softer ones anymore. So I just find that I get more consistent results with it. So when I looked around today, did my own search and couldn't find anything but just standard replacement pads. Then I went to Facebook and said, hey, everybody, help me out. Do you, I'm trying to look for firm pads. And everybody sent me links to the, the medium pads, <laughs> like the regular. <laughs> and I was very clear about it. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm looking for firm. I know that they make, you know, the, the regular ones are, all the regular replacements are medium. I'm looking for firm. Oh, here you go. And it's another link to another medium pad. <laughs> So then I went to the Wood Talk forum, and uh, a good answer from a guy named uh, Viralin. He says, uh, he says, nope, I've looked and looked and looked. After your episode about efficient sanding, I went in search because it made way too much sense to have these options and be able to do it right, but I couldn't come up with anything. The only pad they seem to offer... Uh, at all is their medium ones. No luck with non-DeWalt sources either. It's rather unfortunate because I otherwise really like the DeWalt. And a couple people did make reference to one for, uh, it's a little bit expensive. I think it's like 150 bucks for the six inch sander, but not the five inch. So I, you may look into that if you have a six inch. I think you mentioned that it's a five inch sander. I can't remember. Uh, but either way, it doesn't sound like the outlook is great for that. <laughs> and this might be just something that Festool, because they're the way they want to you know, set up their product line, they offer these things, but you might have trouble finding elsewhere. Um, so you really have stumped me, Facebook, and the Wood Talk Forum at this point. Congratulations. You win. <laughs> not, not a hard, not a hard you, pad. <laughs> you win a block of wood with sandpaper wrapped around it. Cause that's what you're going to have. to use. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Very good point. Maybe rather than saying a hard pad, you should have said, I need a stern. And then that way they, Oh, 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 I understand now. Okay. Oh. All right. Well, we should probably take a break real quick to talk about one of our sponsors, audible.com. 
Audible.com is a leading provider of audiobooks with more than 150,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. Now, you guys know we've mentioned it in the past that the three of us frequently listen to audiobooks while driving and also working in the shop. And right now, I mentioned this last time too, I'm still listening to the Live Ship Traders trilogy by Robin Hobb. Uh, really enjoying it, but I kind of took a break from listening and, and now I'm back into it. Uh, great book. Great trilogy. I love trilogies, especially if it's good. I, I hate them when I'm like, I get into it and I realize I got two more to go just to finish the story. Right. <laughs> That's always <laughs> sucky, but, uh, but yeah, it's a, it's great because you can breeze through them with, with audible. It doesn't feel like as much of a commitment to these things. Cause they go by so much faster when I'm listening at two X speed, which is how I like to do it. So, uh, Matt, do you have a recommendation this week? Yeah, this time around, I have uh, The Atlantis Gene by A.G. Riddle, which is also a uh, trilogy. It's, it's uh, the the first in his origin mystery trilogy, which is more or less it's, a, it's described as a techno thriller about global genetic experiments, ancient conspiracies, and the mysteries of human evolution. More or less, I found it to be something that caught my attention and really kept me going throughout the day, even when I had those moments where normally I'm just about ready just to fall asleep at work. Uh, this one actually was like enough to keep me going. And at one point, it even startled me, which was really funny for my coworkers. <laughs> ah! <laughs> Very nice. Nice. I How about you, just, Shannon? I just finished up The Magician's Land. It's, it is the third in a trilogy. We have a little, little theme going on <laughs> I here. I like trilogies. <laughs> Actually, I don't know. Maybe We have a, a trifecta of trilogies. Whoa, Ooh, that's, that's powerful. Um, the Magician's was the first book, and it's like it's been likened to like the adult version of Harry Potter, although I know many adults who read Harry Potter, myself included. Mm-hmm. This is a very, very dark version of a magician's world and they go to a school and they're studied magician magicians they study magic and uh it's it's awesome and it's one of those books that you end up sitting in the car in the driveway when you get home from your commute you're still sitting there in the driveway (laughs) listening to it yeah yeah my only my only issue was is i blew through it in like a week so yeah now i'm sad now you gotta find more you know, yeah. then, uh, you know, I'm going to admit this publicly, uh, when Mateo was born and we had some really, really rough times with him, just the, so, oh, bad memories. Anyway, I would go and be like, all right, we need milk, don't we? All right, I'll go to the store and get milk. <laughs> and I would, I mean, it's only, you know, five minutes away and I should be back like within 15 minutes and I would just, I would milk it. No, no pun intended. I would milk it and I would sit in that parking lot and I would listen to a book on, on audible just for that reason. Cause you kind of just like, you put your head back, you just listen and you're hearing a good story. You zone out, you know, <laughs> listen to something great. And I would just, uh, I would just avoid going home for a little bit. And then I, you know what? The good thing was I'd go back home. I'd be totally refreshed because it was like just being in a different world for a few minutes. And I came back and I could be the father and husband I was meant to be. That's right. Absolutely. And of course, you would have drank the milk from the container and then that's you know, right. I drank, always have to go there, back out. Drank the milk like it's, uh, you know, whiskey because I don't drink alcohol. So, yeah, so we want to we want to say thanks to Audible for being a sponsor, <laughs> helping you avoid fatherhood since 2000. <laughs> that's right. Oh, good stuff. All right. Well, Audible does want you to try out their service for free. You could download one of the recommended books that we suggested today or another one of your choice. And you can go to audiblepodcast.com slash woodtalk to do that. Now, that's audiblepodcast.com slash wood talk and thank you audible we appreciate you sponsoring the show let's move in shut up i'm talking here matt what you're doing what (laughs) trying to do a show you're avoiding something are you listening to a book right now (laughs) that's right hold on i'll be right back i'm avoiding this show 
Um, all right. Our email got one here from Jared. He says, I'm in the early process of building a dressing table for my wife for Christmas. I thought I would get an early start so that uh, when I inevitably screw something up, it won't be on Christmas Eve. Anyway, just purchased some quarter saw American sycamore from my local Sawyer. Went into this with the understanding that sycamore is incredibly difficult to get good yields out of uh, out of a kiln because it shrinks so much. However, he had some boards that turned out pretty well, so I took them off his hands. Got home, jointed, planed it down to inch and a half thick, meaning that I'd be left with about five-eighths of an inch thick pieces once book matched and re planed. Uh, well, I cut them on the bandsaw and that wood had more tension than Matt on a first date. <laughs> That's actually why I picked this question. <laughs> I just uh, like that just line. Just for the record, Matt usually didn't make it to the first date. <laughs> oh, Matt. Oh. Uh, he says, I ended up with two curved calls with the most beautiful figure. So my dilemma is I have these two incredible pieces of bookmatch sycamore that I want to use for a tabletop. Do you think it's safe to practice or as safe practice to go ahead and use these boards and assume that when screwed down to a table apron that it'll flatten out? Or do I have some pretty drawer sides? Well, it's tough. You know, when the board warps like that, especially as you cut it, you release that tension and boom, you got yourself a nice curved potato chip. Uh, To me, the outlook isn't so good. I think forcing wood to do things that it does not want to do just means putting off the inevitable. And a lot of times it can be uh, something as simple as lifting one of the table legs. It could actually be so strong that uh, if you attach it that firmly to the frame, you could just lift up a leg and now you've got a wobbly table that you're battling. So um, obviously this comes down to how severe it is, but if it's severe enough, the way you describe it, uh, Jared, it sounds like it's going to be an issue for me personally. I just would, put it on the side. I'd wait for another project to come along that needs smaller stock that you might be able to, to rip it into narrower and shorter pieces where you could work out that curvature and still get, you know, good use and good yield out of those boards. But in terms of a tabletop, if it starts curly and it starts twisted and you don't have the means to get it out by milling, there's a good chance it's just going to go back that way, no matter what you do to it, uh, to relieve that pressure. Now, the exception here would be something like kerfing, or if you you do something on the underside of the boards to essentially weaken the structure and straighten it out, you might be able to convince it to do what it doesn't want to do, and it could stay that way. Um, but I, most times you can't get away with that. That's a really hard technique to pull off on something like a tabletop, uh, because you just have all those ridges uh, on the underside, which is no fun. So, you know, it, it, it's tough to say it's tough to say goodbye to a nice board, but th- these I would put on the side. Personally, I would use them for something else. Would you guys, if it, let's say it really warped to all heck, would you guys uh, shoehorn these into a project that they pretty much didn't want to be into? Well, if it's if it's really nice figure, what's stopping him from sawing it into veneer and using it as a veneer top? Because yeah. first of all, isn't 5.8 kind of thin for a top? He said he left with two five inch thick five eighths inch thick pieces. Yeah, I guess that were maybe, matched. Maybe, oh, did he say what kind of table he's making? He's I mean, building a dressing table, so that could be a lot of things, but uh, it still I, seems awful thin. It does, but maybe he's just top. maybe he just liked the wood so much he was <laughs> sacrificing thickness just to get the book match he's looking for. So I'd say resaw it again. Make some and veneer. Make veneer out of it. Put mm. it on a, a nice stable uh, plywood substrate or something like that. Yeah, he should. Yeah. I mean, even at the thickness that he's at now, if he reflattens it and does the cut, he should be able to get the yield for I mean, it's for quarter veneer. sawn, so it's all about that ray fleck in the sycamore. So it's it's pretty no matter what he does. Yeah, that's so. that yeah, good point. Well, try that out, mm. Jared. That's actually a really a good solution there. And you know what? Mm. Ultimately it'll be more stable in the long run that you know than if it were solid anyway. So 
Right. Or, or maybe, you know, use that to your advantage and maybe right there in the center, I'll be like a little trench and then uh, perhaps you can leave like your jewelry in there or something mm-hmm. or, you know, that it'll just roll to the center. You want to worry about it rolling off the edge. I'm just making stuff up. I, I would struggle to force myself not to use it because I would be looking at that going, I had such plans for you. You will work in <laughs> right. my plans. It is, but yeah. it is frustrating. I mean, when, when it, you have this great plan for something, I mean, that, that happened to me with the walnut legs on a display stand recently. I went out and bought that beautiful 12 quarter and oh. it just wound up being scrap because it just warped and there's nothing I could do with it. It wasn't that easily recoverable and, uh, you know, you just deal with it. Right. I, that's usually when you turn and you blame the, the person with the kiln and you're like, you did this. You suck. You know you did this. <laughs> uh, please don't do that. <laughs> Actually, just email Shannon and, and blame him. Yeah, send him really bad pictures of it. and ask people like you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no. All right. This comes from somebody. Somebody named David. Yeah. He says, I have a question on the Veritas Bevel Up Smoother that I just purchased from Lee Valley. The reason I got it is because I'm getting sick of all the sanding I'm doing to finish things up, so I was hoping I could knock a lot of that out with the plane. So far, I've just been practicing, but I'm having a lot of difficulty working on the face side of boards. I have a feeling that my problem comes down to sharpening. So I think the real question is, if I'm only going as high as 1500 grit, should I be expecting either tear out or a failure of the blade to gauge the wood on red oak? I can get about one or two thousandths of an inch curls on the edge of some crappy SPF spruce pine fir from the big box store, sounds like. Um, then when I go back to red oak to the face side with the same setting, the whole plane basically just slides across the board without engaging. If I bring the blade out more, I'm tearing out the grain. I've seen a lot of videos and read a lot about sharpening and 8,000 grit keeps coming up. I don't have anything that fine yet, so I have a feeling that's what I need. So I picked this question because there's a couple things going on here. Nine times out of 10, when you're having trouble with a plane, it is a sharpening issue. And it's just a matter of go and sharpen a little bit more. However, a blade that has been freshly sharpened on 1500 grit is still pretty dang sharp. What you run into when you go into the higher grits is a finer polishing and adding durability to the edge. If you were to pick up Ron Hawk's book or something like that with lots of uh uh, magnified electron microscope images, you see that what looks like to be a very frayed and jagged edge at 1500 grit is a much smoother edge at 8000 grit. Sharp is basically the perfect intersection of two planes, right? So whether or not that's done at 1500 grit or 30,000 grit, it's still sharp. You're just going to have a more durable edge. So if you're coming right off the sharpening stones at 1500 grit, you should still be getting a decent cut. Now, what you may be experiencing is on the red oak, it's harder, it's kind of gnarly, it may be um, red oak in general, especially big box red oak, can be kind of a pain in the butt. So maybe it's it's tearing up that edge a lot faster. However, I think it's not, I don't want to disregard sharpening because I do think that's a big issue when most people have troubles with planes. But I think what you're dealing with is a board that's not exactly flat. <clears throat> If you're taking a one or two thousandths of an inch curl, essentially what you're expecting is the board in which you're planing to be flat to within two thousandths of an inch over the area of the size of the sole of that plane. And the Veritas Bevel Up Smoother is a beefy smoother. It's it's no joiner plane with a 22 inch long sole, but it is a wide sole. And I want to say it's around 
eight to 12 inches. I don't remember exactly, but it's a, it's a typical smoothing plane, but it's a wide smoothing plane. So there's a decent surface area that's referencing on that board. You're now expecting that board to be two within a thousandth of an inch flat in order to get that thousands of an inch shaving. That's not to say you can't do it, but you may have to take some more passes. So when you say it's skating across the board, what I'm wondering is, is it actually skating across the board or is it taking light little, you know, snipping cuts as it moves across the board? Moreover, is the board slightly out of flat to the point where it's lifting the blade out of the cut because maybe it's it's not flat in one area and that's it's kind of like it's running up over a speed bump or something like that. The fact that you're getting shavings on the edge grain makes sense because you've got a much smaller surface area. You think about it, it's a three quarter inch wide board. You can center the plane on that three quarter inches and it's pretty easy to get a shaving. Many people have this problem when they move to a face because obviously the entire sole of the plane is riding on the board. And if that board is out of flat, well, that's what the plane's for. Going to a board with the smoothing plane set at the thousands of an inch may not be the best solution. It may be a matter of, of, of certain increasing the depth of cut and widening the mouth in order to to work it down but you you got to be careful because as you saw there is a point when it starts to engage but now you've got it taking this super heavy cut because the plane itself has been lifted away from the board in order for the blade to make contact you've got to advance it so it's taken like a 16th of an inch shaving so it takes that light cut on that while it's raised out and then it drops back down to be flat with the board and now it's taking a 16th of an inch and it digs in and it tears out. So I think that's more the issue you're dealing with is a board that that isn't exactly flat. And you know you, ha- you have to ask yourself, what have I done to this board before I started hitting it with the smoothing plane? So sharpening maybe, but I don't know. Sometimes it's the board more than sharpening. There's a lot of times when I get a board right off of the planer or the jointer and I'll take it back to the workbench, hit it with a smoother that's kind of been set up for something else previously. I know it's where I need it to be. And I'm always surprised at how many passes it takes before I get a legitimate cut out of it. Uh, Because usually you're riding on the ridges, so the machine marks. And a lot of times you're just kissing the surface, the peaks. And it takes three or four passes before I even start to go, okay, yeah. And if I had jumped the gun and adjusted my blade initially, that's exactly what would have happened. I would have caught and I would have probably had a tear out situation. So uh, it's just a matter of patience. So yeah, if that board truly is flat and it's off of a machine, chances are you've got that washboard effect that you need to work through first before you can even start to see any kind of uh, legitimate shavings coming off of there. What I find a lot as well is people who um, they get a little bit of shaving in one spot of the board and they don't get a shaving in another spot of the board. And what ends up happening is they either get frustrated, but you end up unevenly shaving or planing the surface. So then your planing is actually making it more out of flat. So then if you're not overlapping your plane strokes, and I usually shoot to overlap them by half the blade. So if you Imagine a center line down the center of your plane. You're lining that center line up on the edge of the last stroke, kind of like cutting the, the grass. You know, you don't go the width of the lawnmower. You, you stagger it so that you get that perfect shaving. If you don't stagger it enough, essentially what you're doing is creating these little furrows with raised ridges. And you're creating more of a washboard effect, which can be even harder to correct, especially when you're only removing two thousandths of an inch at a time. And then it gets to the point where the dang thing won't cut at all. 
And then you toss it across the room and go, that Shannon guy's full of crap, man. (laughs) (laughs) You might do that anyway. So Yeah, I was going to say, that's a normal event. (laughs) It's true. It's true. So, you know, I I personally think 8,000 grit is kind of a big deal. It is kind of important with these, but it's not necessary. I know a lot of people who stop at 2,000, 4,000. Some of them stop at 1,500 like you are. Um, Paul Sellers stops at 120. Yeah, there you go. Something well, somebody sent that to me on Facebook recently. He's like, Paul Sellers says you don't need to sharpen past uh, 120 grit. What do you have to say? What? No. what? Don't ask me a question like that. <laughs> you know, that's the, what Shannon's the, for. The the Euclidean definition of sharp is the intersection of two planes. So yeah, if it's two planes, the back and the bevel intersecting, that's sharp. But eh, how long does that last? Yeah. Cool. Yes, and I just said Euclidean. I'll have to look that up when we get off here. That's not what I heard. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Matt, how about you? All right, well, we had this last question that came in from Kevin. And Kevin says, I have some nice tiger maple that I was hoping to turn into an octagonal mirror frame. What kind of joint would you recommend for the miter joints? I was thinking of using mitered lap joints, but I'm having a hard time trying to visualize the layout. Could I get away with using butt joints and glue? Is there a better joint I could use? Preferably some I can do with hand tools as I live in an apartment. So first of all, let's... Let's address the whole issue of which joint to use. So uh, I say, yes, you could rather easily use butt joints and glue. And the reason why I say a butt joint and glue is perfectly fine is it's a mirror frame. It's not something I see getting manhandled a lot, unless, of course, you're throwing it around like a Frisbee. Then in that case, you might want to reinforce it. But if it's something that's just hanging on the wall, if you do it properly, it's going to work out perfectly fine. Now, Another route to go, which maybe would help to reinforce those butt joints if you're not convinced that they're going to work really well, is uh, you could easily get like maybe some metal brackets or something to add on the back because, after all, it's going to be hanging on a wall, so nobody's going to see them on the back. That's not really breaking the rules. I know a lot of people are probably like just wincing at that idea right now, but there's that possibility. There's also these specialty nails that you could get to go across uh, the butt joint that I see oftentimes in a lot of uh, frames for picture frames and, and of course mirrors also. Those are a couple of hardware options you could go go with. Still another route to help reinforce the butt joint might be something as simple as using just dowels. There is nothing wrong with dowels. They work amazing. Uh, Get them all lined up and you're all set to go. In fact, you don't even have to have a dowel jig to do it. If you are very careful, you can line them up freehand. I would probably recommend going with the jig though. I was going to say on an octagon. Holy crap. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I'd be able to get that. Well, how much time do you want to spend in the shop? Because (laughs) (laughs) we only do one at a time. So anyway, so that's one way to go with that. Of course, uh, there's always the possibility of using uh, pocket holes, uh, as as on the back there to help hold those together, maybe even uh, biscuits or something. Uh, so anyways, that's those are some options you could go with. Of course, if you really want to get fancy with the big joinery, say like with the, uh, the half lap or something that Kevin was thinking about, but you're having a hard time kind of picturing how it is you might do this. I've, I've mentioned this book before. Uh, don't let the name of it throw you off a little bit. I always recommend Classic Joints with Power Tools by Young Chan. It's a great reference resource, and regardless of whether you're using power tools, hand tools, or a mix of the two of them, what's really great is that he has some fantastic visual references in there of the basic joint itself and then all of these 
weird off joints off of it, you know, like stuff that's just really exotic. And then he goes through and explains how to do it on different power tools. But again, you can easily look at it and figure out, all right, I need to make this cheek with this shoulder. Uh, I could do this with these hand tools or something. So hmm. it's a neat one. If you want that visual reference, I definitely recommend it. It's been in my library for years. And whenever people ask me about uh, a joinery book, I'm like, that's one of my favorites. Go there. So Again, maybe you'll get another idea of other possibilities for that crazy, what is that, octagonal? That's eight, eight pieces? Eight, uh, eight joints. <laughs> I, I wonder how, Shannon, how would you approach maybe a spline miter joint on there by hand? Yeah. Is that like a giant pain in the butt? No, not really. Um, it's just, uh, I would use a plow plane, frankly. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I, I'm thinking of, I can't remember what the angle is, but it's, well, look at it this way. 22 and a half is, yeah, it's 22 and 22 a half, and a right? half, yep. Yeah, so it's actually a shallow enough angle that you've got um, really easy grain to plane because it's like halfway between ingrain and face grain. So there's not a whole lot of grain direction that you have to worry about. Right. Um, depending on how wide the pieces are, obviously, a, a plow plane may be a little bit difficult to um, to reference. Sure. So then I just use like a mortise gauge to kind of scribe the edges of it and then just come in with a chisel and hog out the stuff in between because that grain is in that in-between thing. It, it just peels away really nicely or you could saw it, I suppose. But Well, you um, know, if you think about it, since uh, you would only be able to, you have half of the joints at a time, you could do, you could line up four of them. I mean, literally line them up and, and just knock them all out as one is if you back them up back, you know, board to board to board, huh. make one wide board and, yeah. and go that way. So you're increasing yeah. the surface for that. Um, but it's a really good point about the angle of it. And that's another reason why just a simple butt joint would, right. would work pretty well in there, too, because you've got more long grain technically. Well, well uh, no, 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 no. You, you don't actually. It's, it's, oh. the, it's the opposite. You're losing some of that. So it's, it's coming closer to a pure butt joint. By dropping down from forty-five to twenty-two right, right. and a half, you're oh, okay, actually, okay. it's actually yeah, yeah, worse. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> See, there's you're that right. whole visualization thing. Yeah, <laughs> but, but here's here's the thing, though, because you're creating an octagon and it's actually connecting all the way around. You're adding a fair amount of strength because it is supported all the way around into that complete octagon. If it were, you know, an octagon with one piece missing, then you can you can add a lot of tweaking on that that will break it apart. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing would be just if it's a mirror frame, one end goes against the wall, right? Mm -hmm. So glue the whole thing up with butt joints and then go back and do some sort of spline uh, once the joint is already put together. Like a, a, the first thing that comes to mind is like a butterfly. You don't have to be right. that fancy because it's going against the back of the wall. But even just take a Forstner bit and drill out a, a, a circular recess that uh, straddles the joint on the back and then inlay a long grain piece of, of round stock, use a hole saw or something like that, uh, to plug that in there. And that is your spline. You know, there's no reason to necessarily put a spline into the joint before you assemble it. Yeah. Interesting. That's about it. Well, you could try the spline from the outside too, like the uh, classic way of doing right. it on a table saw where you build the frame and then you hold it upright in a jig and run it across the table saw blade. Um, yeah. A couple of curved cuts with a, with a handsaw, clean up with a chisel, slide a little thin piece of wood in there. You might have a nice decorative effect with it too. Yeah, and those Ooh. are super easy with hand tools. It's, it's you know, depending on what you use to spline it, you could do a single handsaw curve with a piece of veneer. Oh man, so that would be kind of cool. Just to have what's nearly as strong, but again, it's a mirror. 
<laughs> you know, you're not going to exactly. be jumping on this thing. You're going to hang right. it on the wall. Yeah, and- again, short of throwing it around, they're like, look at yourself. No, you look yeah. at you. No, look <laughs> at me. Well, that's what they play in the uh, Vanderlust household, Mirror Frisbee, right? We do all the time. That's why we've had such horrible years <laughs> of bad luck recently. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> All right, let's get to uh, our supporting stuff. If you want to support us, you can do that. You could set up a recurring donation. Just go to woodtalkshow.com. Look over in the left-hand column, and you'll see those links. You could also buy a Wood Talk t-shirt at twwstore.com, and you could leave us an iTunes review. Just look us up in the iTunes store, click on ratings and reviews, and if you could, give us that sweet five-star rating, just like J24SUS did, and also Dub who had this to say. He had a short and sweet review. I liked it. He calls us the three amigos of woodworking, just the right balance of silliness, good information, and opinions. Well, thank you for that, RM Dub. We appreciate it. And uh, Matt, how about you give him the contact info, and I think we can get out of here. Uh, See, si, senor. Uh, do you have any comments, questions, or topic suggestions? I was really hoping I could pull out my college Spanish, but that tells you how much I paid attention. <laughs> there are several different ways to contact us. Leave us a voicemail on Skype. Our username is Online. Call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180. Email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com or leave us a comment on our Wood Talk Facebook page. And if you're ever looking for the show notes or downloads from today's show or previous episodes, you're going to find them over at woodtalkshow.com. Very cool. Well, have a great woodworking week, everybody, and we'll catch you next time. This podcast is part of the Frog Pants Studios Network. For more information about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there.